Vienna. Strange and unusual stories from history, literature, myths, and legends. Mother Sauvage by Guy de Maupassant Translated by Albert M.C. McMaster Fifteen years had passed since I was at Verologne. I returned there in the autumn to shoot with my friend Serval, who had at last rebuilt his chateau which the Prussians had destroyed. I loved that district. It is one of those delightful spots which have a sensuous charm for the eyes. You love it with a physical love. We, whom the country enchants, keep tender memories of certain springs, certain woods, certain pools, certain hills, seen very often which have stirred us like joyful events. Sometimes our thoughts turn back to a corner in a forest, or the end of a bank, or an orchard filled with flowers, seen but a single time on some bright day, yet remain in our hearts like the image of certain women met in the street on a spring morning in their light, gauzy dresses, leaving in the soul and body an unsatisfied desire which is not to be forgotten, a feeling that you have just passed by happiness. At Verologna I loved the whole countryside, dotted with little woods and crossed by brooks, which sparkled in the sun and looked like veins carrying blood to the earth. You fished in them for crawfish, trout, and eels. Divine happiness. You could bathe in places. You often found snipe among the high grass which grew along the borders of these small water courses. I was stepping along light as a goat watching my two dogs running ahead of me. Serval, a hundred meters to my right, was beating a field of lucerne. I turned round by the thicket, which forms the boundary of the woods of Sandra's, and saw a cottage in ruins. Suddenly, I remembered it as I had seen it the last time, in 1869, neat, covered with vines, with chickens before the door. What is sadder than a dead house with its skeleton standing bare and sinister? I also recalled that inside its doors, after a very tiring day, the good woman had given me a glass of wine to drink, and that Serval had told me the history of its people. The father, an old poacher, had been killed by the gendarmes. The son, whom I had once seen, was a tall, dry fellow, whom also passed for a fierce slayer of game. People called them Les Sauvages. Was that a name or a nickname? I called to Saval. He came up with his long strides like a crane. I asked him, what's become of those people? This was his story. When war was declared, the son Savage, who was then 33 years old, enlisted, leaving his mother alone in the house. People did not pity the old woman very much because she had money. They knew it. She remained entirely alone in that isolated dwelling so far from the village on the edge of the wood. She was not afraid, however, being of the same strain as the menfolk, a hardy old woman, tall and thin, who seldom laughed and with whom one never jested. The women of the fields laugh but little in any case, 
that is, men's business, but they themselves have sad and narrowed hearts, leading a melancholy, gloomy life. The peasants imbibe a little noisy merriment at the tavern, but their helpmates always have grave, stern countenances. The muscles of their faces have never learned the motions of laughter. Mother Savage continued her ordinary existence in her cottage, which was soon covered by the snows. She came to the village once a week to get bread and a little meat. Then she returned to her house. As there was talk of wolves, she went out with a gun upon her shoulder, her son's gun, rusty and with a butt worn by the rubbing of the hand. And she was a strange sight, the tall Savage, a little bent, going with slow strides over the snow. The muzzle of the piece extending beyond the black headdress, which confined her head and imprisoned her white hair, which no one had ever seen. One day, a Prussian force arrived. It was billeted upon the inhabitants according to the property and resources of each. Four were allotted to the old woman, who was known to be rich. They were four great fellows with fair complexion, blonde beards, and blue eyes, who had not grown thin in spite of the fatigue which they had endured already, and who also, though in a conquered country, had remained kind and gentle. Alone with this aged woman, they showed themselves full of consideration, sparing her as much as they could, all expense and fatigue. They could be seen, all four of them, making their toilet at the well in their shirt sleeves in the gray dawn, splashing with great swishes of water their pink-white northern skin, while La Mère Sauvage went and came preparing their soup. They would be seen cleaning the kitchen, rubbing the tiles, splitting wood, peeling potatoes, doing all the housework, like four good sons around their mother. But the old woman thought always of her own son, so tall and thin with his hooked nose and his brown eyes and his heavy mustache, which made a roll of black hair upon his lip. She asked every day of each of the soldiers who were installed besides her hearth. Do you know where the French marching regiment, number 23, was sent? My boy is in it. They invariably answered, No, we don't know. Don't know a thing at all. And, understanding her pain and her uneasiness, they who had mothers too there at home, they rendered her a thousand little services. She loved them well, moreover, her four enemies, since the peasantry have no patriotic hatred. That belongs to the upper class alone. The humble, those who pay the most because they are poor and because every new burden crushes them down, those who are killed in masses, who make the true cannons pray because they are so many, those in fine, who suffer most cruelly the atrocious miseries of war because they are the feeblest and offer least resistance, they hardly understand at all those bellicose ardors, that excitable sense of honor, or those pretended political combinations which in six months exhaust two nations, the conqueror with the conquered. They said in the district in speaking of the Germans of Lemire Sauvage, there are four who have found a soft place. Now, one morning when the old woman was alone in the house, she observed far off on the plain a man coming towards her dwelling. Soon she recognized him. It was the postman to distribute the letters. He gave her a folded paper, and she drew out of her case the spectacles which he used for sewing. Then she read, Madame Savage, this letter is to tell you sad news. 
Your boy Victor was killed yesterday by a shell which almost cut him in two. I was nearby as we stood next to each other in the company and he told me about you and asked me to let you know on the same day if anything happened to him. I took his watch, which was in his pocket, to bring it back to you when the war is done. Cézère Riveau, soldier of the second class, marching regiment number 23. The letter was dated three weeks back. She did not cry at all. She remained motionless, so overcome and stupefied that she did not even suffer as yet. She thought, There's Victor, killed now. Then, little by little, the tears came to her eyes and the sorrow filled her heart. Her thoughts came one by one, dreadful, torturing. She would never kiss him again, her child, her big boy. Never again. The gendarmes had killed the father. The Prussians had killed the son. He had been cut in two by a cannonball. She seemed to see the thing, the horrible thing. The head falling, the eyes open, while he chewed the corner of his big mustache as he always did in moments of anger. What had they done with his body afterward? If they'd only let her have her boy back, as they had brought back her husband with the bullet in the middle of the forehead. But she heard a noise of voices. It was the Prussians returning from the village. She hid her letter very quickly in her pocket and she received them quietly with her ordinary face, having had time to wipe her eyes. They were laughing, all four, delighted for they brought with them a fine rabbit, stolen doubtless, and they made signs to the old woman that there was going to be something good to eat. She set herself to work at once to prepare breakfast, but when it came to killing the rabbit, her heart failed her. And yet it was not the first. One of the soldiers struck it down with a blow of his fist behind the ears. The beast, once dead, she skinned the red body but the sight of the blood which he was touching and which covered her hands and which he felt cooling and coagulating made her tremble from head to foot and she kept seeing her big boy cut in two, bloody, like this still palpitating animal. She sat down at table with the Prussians, but she could not eat, not even a mouthful. They devoured the rabbit without bothering themselves about her she looked at them sideways without speaking, her face so impassive that they perceived nothing. All of a sudden she said, I don't even know your names, and here's a whole month that we've been together. They understood, not without difficulty, what she wanted, and told their names. That was not sufficient. She had them written for her on a paper, with the addresses of their families, and, resting her spectacles on her great nose, she contemplated that strange handwriting, then folded the sheet and put it in her pocket, on top of the letter, which told her of the death of her son. When the meal was ended, she said to the men, I'm going to work for you. And she began to carry up hay into the loft where they slept. They were astonished at her taking all this trouble. She explained to them that thus they would not be so cold. 
and they helped her. They heaped the stacks of hay as high as a straw roof, and in that manner they made a sort of great chamber with four walls of fodder, warm and perfumed, where they should sleep splendidly. At dinner, one of them was worried to see that La Mer Sauvage still ate nothing. She told him that she had pains in her stomach. Then she kindled a good fire to warm herself, and the four Germans ascended to their lodging place by the ladder which served them every night for this purpose. As soon as they closed the trap door, the old woman removed the ladder, then opened the outside door noiselessly and went back to look for more bundles of straw with which she filled her kitchen. She went barefoot in the snow, so softly that no sound was heard. From time to time she listened to the sonorous and unequal snoring of the four soldiers who were fast asleep. When she judged her preparations to be sufficient, she threw one of the bundles into the fireplace, and when it was alight, she scattered it over all the others. Then she went outside again and looked. In a few seconds, the whole interior of the cottage was illuminated with a brilliant light and became a frightful brazier, a gigantic fiery furnace whose glare streamed out of the narrow window and threw a glittering beam upon the snow. Then a great cry issued from the top of the house. It was a clamor of men shouting heart-rending calls of anguish and of terror. Finally, the trap door, having given way, a whirlwind of fire shot up into the loft, pierced the straw roof, rose to the sky like the immense flame of a torch, and all the cottage flared. Nothing more was heard therein but the crackling of the fire, the cracking of the walls, the falling of the rafters. Suddenly the roof fell in, and the burning carcass of the dwelling hurled a great plume of sparks into the air amid a cloud of smoke. The country, all white, lit up by the fire, shone like a cloth of silver tinted with red. A bell, far off, began to toll. The old Sauvage stood before her ruined dwelling, armed with her gun, her son's gun, for fear one of those men might escape. When she saw that it was ended, she threw her weapon into the brazier. A loud report followed. People were coming. The peasants. The Prussians. They found the woman seated on the trunk of a tree, calm and satisfied. A German officer, but speaking French like a son of France, demanded, Where are your soldiers? She reached her bony arm towards the red heap of fire, which was almost out, and answered with a strong voice, There. They crowded round her. The Prussian asked, How did it take fire? It was I who set it on fire. They did not believe her. They thought that the sudden disaster had made her crazy. While all pressed round and listened, she told the story from beginning to end, from the arrival of the letter to the last shriek of the men who were burned with her house, and never omitted a detail. When she had finished, she drew two pieces of paper from her pocket and, in order to distinguish them by the last gleams of the fire, she again adjusted her spectacles. Then she said, showing one, That, that is the death of Victor. Showing the other, she added, indicating the red ruins with a bend of the head, Here are their names so that you can write home. She quietly held a sheet of paper out to the officer. 
who held her by the shoulders, and she continued, You must write how it happened, and you must say to their mothers that it was I who did that. Victoire Simone, La Sauvage. Do not forget. The officer shouted some orders in German. They seized her. They threw her against the walls of her house, still hot. Then twelve men drew up quickly before her at twenty paces. She did not move. She had understood. She waited. An order rang out, followed instantly by a long report. A belated shot went off by itself, after the others. The old woman did not fall. She sank as though they had cut off her legs. The Prussian officer approached. She was almost cut in two, and in her withered hand she held her letter bathed with blood. My friend Serval added, It was by way of reprisal that the Germans destroyed the chateau of the district, which belonged to me. I thought of the mothers of those four fine fellows burned in that house and the horrible heroism of that other mother shot against the wall. And I picked up a little stone, still blackened by the flames. Narrator's Notes Mother Sauvage is set during the Franco-Prussian War of 1870, which is also the setting for a number of Robert W. Chambers' short stories as well. Unlike Chambers, who didn't come to study in France until 1886, de Maupassant served in the French army during the conflict, and he would often return to the war in his writings. The nation-state that became Germany was forged by the French defeat and the Prussian victory, and in many ways, this war set the stage for both of the world wars of the 20th century. The perceived threat from Germany often shows up in French literature in the latter part of the 19th century and only grows more strident in the years preceding World War I. Chambers, an ardent Francophile who never served in any army nor experienced war firsthand, demonized the German people in some of his writings during the First World War. De Maupassant didn't demonize the Prussians in his short stories, but saw them as fellow humans engaged in a terrible tragedy for both the conqueror and the conquered, as he says in this story. In this respect, his writing reminds me of the Civil War stories of Ambrose Bierce, who, despite four years of bloody combat, never seemed to hate the enemy on the other side of the battlefield. Rather, he and de Maupassant hated the war. It seemed likely to me that Chambers was influenced by de Maupassant's writing, but that influence seems to be no deeper than window dressing. All music and music and audio production by Bob Familiar. Narration by Veronica and Joey Pesci, Bob Familiar, and Jim Bilbro. Recorded by Joey Pesci and Bob Familiar. This has been Ambient Arcana. Ambient Arcana.